Well, turning your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6, as we now have arrived at what the narrator in Joshua has really been setting us up for, uh, for quite a few chapters, it is really a model of the conquests that occur within the land, in much as it is the highlighted conquest of the entire book. And that is, of course, the fall of Jericho. Joshua chapter 6, I'm going to read, and hopefully my voice will let me read uh, the entirety of the chapter. It is 27 verses, but it is very important that we hear these things. Again, this is the word of the Lord, and so let's give attention to it. Even though we're familiar with the story, let's listen to it again as though we've never heard it before. Joshua 6, beginning with verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, and everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. Just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before uh, before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that, was, that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent but you keep your things uh, yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. 
So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. The wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and, and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. <clears throat> and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed be, uh, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Amen. <clears throat> As many of you know, during the numerous battles of World War II, there were uh, uh, innumerable strategies concocted and drafted by the generals that led and guided the various troops of the United States military. It would have been ridiculous, indeed, had the generals of our army uh, concocted such plans and such uh, ideas as we read here in Joshua chapter 6, as a means by which it would take a, a, a force that is before them. Imagine if General MacArthur had offered such a battle plan. The people would have laughed, and they would have joked, and they would have asked crazy questions as to whether the general had indeed lost his mind. What's more, his subordinates, his understudies, would have thought he was insane even to offer such commands as we have before us in this passage. And indeed, here in Joshua chapter 6, we have what amounts to a rather odd way of dealing with an enemy. You've heard the story, you, you know it quite well, and this idea of marching around a city and blowing trumpets and shouting and then doing it numerous times on another day and, and then the city walls fall down and, and victory's yours seems rather strange uh, for a military plan. But it is indeed the plan. It is a plan that doesn't come from General MacArthur or any other human general or, or leader it doesn't even come from Joshua, but it comes from he who is the commander of the army of the Lord. He who spoke to Joshua there at the very end of chapter 5, who is there to comfort and equip and give to Joshua, the leader of the people, strength and hope in a battle that he is about to take against a foe that is stronger than him, a foe that is stronger than us. And as we like the people of old, as we see this passage and we look at it and we realize that it's really speaking about us, we recognize that in the 
pages of Scripture, God often gives to His people rather odd commands. Things that are contrary to what would normally be Contrary to our flesh, contrary to our conventional thinking, contrary to our own wisdom and philosophies, contrary to all of them, but they all come, don't they, from the hands, from the voice, the lips, the mind of the sovereign God of heaven, he who is the commander, and the leader of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question, of course, for us is whether or not we're going to obey. The question for us is whether or not we're going to even do what we've been told. Whether we're going to engage the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, even though it's stronger than us and mightier than us, but yet he who lives in us is greater than he who lives in the world. The question, of course, for us as we consider this chapter is whether we're going to do what the commander tells us. But not so much that as it is that we will trust him. In the battle, even in those times when it seems so difficult to do so, will we in fact trust him? And as we do, we see and we will see how the God of heaven fights for us. Because as you've heard already in the narrative and and have taken note of, uh, they did nothing to the walls. They didn't touch them. They walked around them. The walls were the problem, weren't they? But they were removed, not by their might or their power, but by the power and might of the God who fights for them. The same God who fights for you and me today, the one who continually fights on behalf of his church, the Lord Jesus, the church that the Lord Jesus Christ gave. Now the context, as I've already noted, Joshua is coming out of this mountaintop experience, undoubtedly. There he has come face to face with the, what is a Christophany, a, a, a pre-incarnate Christ who visits him there on the plains of Jericho as he gets ready to take this battle on against this city, the city of Jericho. The location is to be noted because it is here Uh, roughly, in which the same place exists in which Jesus Christ was uh, likely baptized. It is a significant battle in many ways because as Joshua leads the people into battle, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he was baptized at the Jordan River, leads his people into battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The commander of the army of the Lord of hosts is the one then who therefore fights for his church. And so I'm going to show you through the entirety of this chapter, through various themes and aspects of it, I'm going to show you that your God fights for you as you pilgrim to your heavenly rest. It's very simple. This is really a prototypical battle that occurs that highlights for us in many ways the battle we have as God's people in the world today. I want to show you that your God fights for you as you pilgrim to your heavenly rest. Three points as we consider all 27 verses. I'm not going to deal with every verse. As you probably know, there's a lot of repetition in this chapter. Uh, But as we look at it, we'll see it in three points. First, the order is given, the order is obeyed, and then the victory secured. The order is given, the order is obeyed, and then the victory is indeed secured. 
Let's first consider in the first five verses of the chapter the orders that are given. The circumstance is one that I've already highlighted for you, so I won't belabor this point. But here, Joshua and the people are facing what indeed is a difficulty. They are going to face a city that is closed in. The narrator goes out of his way to make that very clear by telling us right away in the beginning of the narrative that Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. One might argue that they were afraid of them, and they very well may have been. Remember the story of Rahab and how she had heard about the way in which God had fought for his people previous, how their hearts melted before them because of the power of Jehovah. And so they lock themselves into their houses, as it were, and they prepare for a battle walled in behind this this impregnable force, this, this fortress of a wall. Who knows how high it was, but we know that it was substantial. So substantial that it fell with a mighty roar, a mighty thunder onto the ground. Now, back in those days, of course, we don't see much of this today. You might be able to go to some military places around the nation and see some of those tourist trap locations in which you can see uh, some semblance of a fortress, but those pale in comparison to what was built in these days. This is typically how cities were built, and they were built this way to prevent attack by evil people, attack by enemies. The city then is closed. No one is going. No one is coming. The siege then, therefore, at least from all intents and purposes, as far as human understanding, is going to be long if the people are to win the day. But Jehovah comes along and he gives to Joshua a promise. Now, it's not a promise he hasn't heard before. It's a promise that he's heard from the very beginning of the book. He continues to hear that I am with you. You will win the battle. The city is already yours. Notice what it says in verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, see. Now, you just stop and think about that for a minute. See what? I'll tell you what I see. I see a fortress in front of me, and I don't have enough people. And how am I going to take this thing apart? That's what I see. Well, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. Wait a minute. Um, excuse me, we haven't done anything yet. No, no, it's done. You see, from God's perspective, the victory is already secured. And much of that is true for us today, and if we fail to see this, we'll always live defeated. In fact, we probably won't get out of bed in the morning. But though we know there's still a battle in front of us as Christians, and we live in a world that is full of it, and the world, the flesh, and the devil... We must remember that the victory is already ours. Though the fortress may still be there standing, it will eventually be toppled by he who is the commander of the army of the Lord. There's no question in his mind, then therefore, of the outcome. And he tells Joshua, as though it's already occurred, what will be. This great promise, then, is something that we must remember and we must continually repeat in our minds and tell our friends and our family that though the church right now looks a little battered, and it does, and there may be difficulties within her, and there are, and while the world seems to be winning, 
The walls of the world seem to be getting taller and taller. The end of the day is simply that they will fall. Because he who has secured that victory has already done so. We are just waiting for the culmination. So Joshua is promised this by Jehovah. The promise of the city is theirs to take, and it is already a battle that is won. How does this apply to us then as Christians, other than what I've already said? Two things I have here in my outline. One is that we must see and must understand the difficulty of the battle. I was telling my wife this this morning, and I still, and I remain convinced of this simple truth that the Christian life is not easy, but there's no better way to live. We face great difficulties as Christians because we're living in a world that does not want us. It's not our home. We are pilgriming. This is one of the reasons why we are pilgrims. It's one of the reasons why we're comforted by Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's one of the reasons why we're pictured that way throughout the scriptures. This is not our home. But that doesn't change the difficulty of the battle nonetheless. We are still here. Much like the people of Israel were on the plains of Jericho, looking at this impregnable force and wondering just exactly how this is ever going to be accomplished. The Christian life is difficult. And if you don't sense that, as Christians, or at least professing Christians, there's something wrong. If you don't sense the battle against yourself first, and never mind the world and and Satan himself, there's something wrong with your spiritual condition. Maybe you're too much like the world, and you don't really see the problem because you're too much like the problem. Maybe it's that you're not a Christian at all. Whatever the case may be, brothers and sisters, the Christian life is hard. It's not hard every second of every day, but it's hard. It's hard to live in a world that is antithetical to everything God's Word teaches. The second, in in the face of that, just like in Joshua's day, we must remember the commitment that God has made to you. Now, we are forgetful people. And I suspect one of the reasons why Joshua heard that refrain over and over throughout this narrative, as the narrator lays it down for us, I am with you, Joshua. I will be with you, Joshua. You will win the victory, Joshua. You will not be defeated, Joshua. I suspect one of the reasons why Jehovah, and it was him who repeated himself, is because he knows that we are but creatures of dust and we forget all too easily. We tremble at the smallest of problems, get all nervous, the heebie-jeebies, as I sometimes call them, at the littlest of things. So God comes to Joshua and he reminds him, I'm for you. You are the apple of my eye. I love you. I am never going to abandon you. You will not be defeated. You are my people. You belong to me. We must remind ourselves of this commitment. This is a commitment that the God of heaven has made for you. He was so convinced and so serious about this commitment to redeem and claim a people to himself that he was willing to execute his own son, to crush him, that he might save a people. And it's through that exercise of God's commitment, rooted all the way back in Genesis 3.15, in which we have hope 
Let the world go insane. Let the world thrash about and do the things that the world will do. The commitment of my God is that he will never abandon me to these people. What's the worst thing that could happen to me? Death? For me to live as Christ, to die is a disaster area. No, gain. God will not leave me to my enemies, even in the grave. His commitment to me is that great. It is to you as well. And we've been promised these victory. And though we may be on the attack as the gates of hell cannot resist the efforts of the church, even as Jericho will not be able to resist the efforts of the church here in this chapter, we must remember that the gates of hell will never prevail. Jericho didn't. And the gates of hell won't either. For the Lord Jesus Christ has already shattered wide the gates of the evil one. And so the circumstance is such that it seems difficult, it seems hard, much like the Christian life is. But we have the refrain of the commitment of Jehovah to help us. Now the command. Unless you don't think like me, which is highly likely, this is strange. You want me to do what? Well, here's what he wants to do. You shall march around the city. Verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Okay, I can buy that. No problem. Not really sure why we're doing this. It's not a parade. Okay, just imagine you're Joshua. Put yourself in the exact event and ask yourself how you might, what you might be thinking right now. I mean, why don't you just hit him with a meteor? If you're going to do all this, wouldn't it just be easier? I mean, you did Sodom and Gomorrah. That was no problem. Boom, gone. Okay, so, Mar- okay, got it. Noted. March around the city once. All right. Thus shall you do for six days. And by the way, there's no significance to the numbers before you get all crazy that, you know, let's not get nuts. Six days. This is not a reference to creation or anything like that. Okay, let's not get crazy. Six days, it just so happens, um, you know, how many days in the week, and uh, they're supposed to rest on the Sabbath day. Okay, there's your significance. That's pretty much it. But, okay, once I, I kind of understood, six Okay, you're God. I'm, I'm, I'm listening. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Now, I can buy the ark being here. I'm good with that. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. Okay. Once would be sufficient, wouldn't it? Why, why seven? Because. All right. And then he goes on and gets to the thing, and we get to verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nud, called the priests and said to them, I think our God is, I, I don't know what he's doing. Nope. He repeats the very command to the people. He tells them what God told them, but told him. There's certainly an oddness to the command. You can almost imagine if you were to enter into the reality of the circumstance to look on Joshua's face. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think Joshua's all that super spiritual. He was a general, remember? He probably was scratching his head maybe just a little. You want us to do that? What? Huh? 
But notice not only is it odd, and it's odd for a reason, but there's also an exactness to it as well. It's not arbitrary. God didn't just say, walk around the city till you're tired. He didn't just say, whatever you feel like doing, it's fine, just as long as you go around it a few times. I don't really care. No. The command of how to take Jericho is exacting. The command of Yahweh are plain enough. The, the commands are simple enough that anyone can understand them. I mean, I, can, I get that. Walk around once. I can do that. Seven times. Okay, I can do that too. I can count to seven. We know Joshua did understand because when we read in verses 6 through 8, he organized the troops exactly the way God had given it. And while God's command here is certainly odd, it is not lacking in precision. How does this relate to us then? There's no question that you're not going to walk around Jericho one time, six times, seven times on the seventh day and blow the horn, shout, and, and have a hoopla and play some crazy music and then watch the fall, walls fall down. But it does apply to us in many different ways. One is the oddness of God's commands in Scripture. This is the only place. There are many places in which there is a certain sense of the oddness, the odd nature of the Christian life as it relates to the world. Let me give you some examples of that. Humility over self-exaltation. The world would say, crush the person in front of you on the corporate ladder to get to the top. Jesus would say, live humbly before all men. Don't promote yourself. Don't boast about your own doings. Let someone else do it for you. Second, serving rather than be served. The world wants what they want when they want it, and they want people to do it for them. The world's all about them, isn't it? The whole world revolves around them. Sadly, some Christians live that way, but the whole world revolves around them as though everything is owed to them. Christ would say to his people, his followers, no, no, you want to defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil? Do it backwards. Do it the other way. Here it is. Serve. Don't seek to be served. Isn't that what Jesus did? As the commander of the army of the Lord, I came not to be served, but to serve. Third, and related to the second one, thinking of others more important than yourselves. Now, I don't think I need to go too far to say to you, <clears throat> we live in a world that does not do that at all. Everything's about me, what I want, and I'm going to get mine. If you don't know that expression, you ask me later, I'll explain it. Christians are to think of others more highly than they think of themselves. Yeah, but you don't know this person. doesn't matter. I don't need to. Yeah, but you know, it doesn't matter. I don't need to. You are to think of others more important than yourself. So what Paul says to the church at Philippi, it's exactly what Jesus did when he entered time and space. I mean, in some sense, and forgive me, I'm not trying to be irreverent here, but in the covenant of redemption in eternity past, when God commissioned his son and they agreed in covenant that he would come into this world and take on human flesh, just exactly how odd must that have been to him since he is perfect spirit? You want me to do what? In order to rescue them, I have to do this? 
Yes. Okay, I'll do it. Why? Because I'm thinking more of their needs than my own. If it was odd for him, so no wonder he calls us to some odd things in this life. Odd in the sense that this is not the way the world works, but it is the way the church should work. Oddness of God's commands. But of course, there is an infinite oddness that through death, we would be freed from death. That was the only way for it to happen. Very counterculture, backwards actually, in a world in which they do everything they can to avoid death. Health clubs, vitamin pills, whatever. But through death, we would be freed from death. The gospel, it's very interesting, the providence of God here, but it's going to sound like the morning sermon. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God is that through the death of one, many would be freed. Death makes life. You tell the average person that, and they're going to look at you like you're nuts. It is really the infinite oddness of all the Bible. It is foolishness to the unbeliever. But it is life to those who believe. And third, note here something that the church of Christ needs to do more of. Humble submission to the commands of the king. It's easy to make reference to the fact that Joshua here humbly submitted himself to the oddness of the commands and the king of glory, the commander of the army of the Lord. Just as Joshua submits to the directives of God, so should we. Sure, there may be, some of them may seem odd. They may look even stupid to the natural man. Imagine the people in Jericho. They represent the world, by the way. Imagine them hold up in their houses with their HBO and Cinemax running and their Netflix going and, 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 and surfing the net. And, and they look out their windows and they see this ragtag bunch of yahoos waltzing around the walls. That's all they're doing. Can you imagine what they must have thought? What are these people doing? What are they, a bunch of weirdos? We need to fear them? Forget it. They're nuts. Who knows what they were thinking, but it was definitely strange. Well, the world thinks what we do is strange. They look in the windows of the church. Well, if you could look in the windows of this church. And they think what we're doing is nuts. It's counterproductive. It doesn't do any good. It's no use. It's a crutch. You people need this. Well, yeah, it's true. I need a crutch. You bet. I'm, I'm a mess, so I need that crutch. It's called Jesus. But the but point is this. To the world, this is craziness. But I don't take my orders from the world. I take my orders from the commander of the army of the Lord who freed me from the world. And the ultimate picture of submission is rooted in the namesake of Joshua. And that is Christ himself. You want me to go do what? Rescue them? They are sinners. They've rebelled against you and your word. They don't love you. 
They're your enemy. Yes, I do. I want you to go do it. And he submits to the will of his father. And he goes and he rescues a people. And all the way through his earthly ministry, he continues to submit to the directive of his father, only doing what his father commands and only saying what his his father told him to say. All of it, a humble submission to the orders given to he who is the ultimate Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And as we learn to submit to his directives, we will find the victory is really ours. And so the orders are obeyed. Very lengthy section in which there's a lot of repeat in verses 6 through 21. Again, we have the circumstances, the people, Joshua and the people, in spite of the strange nature of the command, Joshua orders the troops to do what they are told to do. And in much the same way, we are going to need to learn to be obedient as they were. And even Jesus himself learned to be obedient through the things that he suffered. Obedience. Not exactly a popular subject from pulpits, nor is it a popular subject in most churches. Most people would just prefer the preacher tell them how great everybody is and give them some energizing speech to carry them through to Sunday night at 6.30 and move about our business. But obedience is, is, is part and parcel of the Christian experience. You read verses 8 through 21 of this chapter, you see the people obeying. They're doing it. They've been promised victory. They've been given odd directives. But they didn't just sit back and say, well, you've promised it, so we're just going to hang out here until you knock the walls down. Imagine if they had said that. Jericho would still be there. No, they had to do something. They had to act. Though God fights for his people, we must cooperate. The Christian life is not one of quiet passivity. We are to labor just as they labored. As they walked around the city once a day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day, we are to labor. As one commentator puts it, he says here, preachers sometimes package the victorious Christian life as a series of steps that one can follow as if it were a mathematical formula. If you simply add up, add all the parts of the spiritual equation together, you will experience triumph over sin. Of course, God and the Holy Spirit are part of the formula, but the believer is often left with the impression that the burden of the effort rests on his shoulders. That is to say, the Christian's shoulders. The Christian life does not work that way. Of course, Christians have responsibilities to strive for holiness. They have to exert effort in the mortification of sin. But at the end of the day, success in our efforts and strivings for holiness results from living with the Lord Jesus at the heart of all we do. The victory was secured by God. He is the one who knocked down the walls. They had to walk around them. They had to cooperate. They had to do what they were told. And at the end of the day, the credit belongs not with them, but with he who knocked the walls over. To he who secures the victory for his people today in the church, 
A victory that we see in verses 22 through 27 of the chapter. That victory that was promised was realized. Yeah, sure, the battle was weird, humanly speaking. But the end was a sure thing, and we see it, don't we? We see it here in Joshua 6 with our eyes. But the victory that we hope for in the future, we believe by faith, trusting that the God who said he would save and rescue his people and conquer the world, the flesh, and the devil will indeed do that. A victory won. Jericho falls. The people are conquered. A remnant is preserved. The Christian life is also one in which the Christian wins, not because of the Christian. That is to say, not because of the Christian's efforts, but due to the power and might of a sovereign God who conquers all his and our enemies. He does that, of course, through the labors of the Son, Christ himself. For he is the one who secured the victory, guarantees it. He who holds the power of death in his hands, who crashed, who, who, who broke wide open the tombs, and that last enemy, that is death, all of it is, belongs to him. He has conquered it. He has defeated it. The gates of hell, the forces of evil, the world, all of it will be cast away because Jesus Christ, the righteous one and the commander of the army of the Lord, has so promised it. So today we believe by faith that that which happened to Joshua on the plains of Jericho will happen to us as a church. No, it won't be a city so much as it'll be the dominions of spiritual forces in the heavenly places. It'll be the sin that resides still in our own black hearts, the battle that we continue to fight day after day. All of it, though, is ours to win For the dominion of sin has been shattered through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That fortress fell, and it fell flat. The people of God won the day against a stronger foe, against a stronger army. But all of it pictures for us really our Christian life. In this prototypical battle, we see the battle we have, you have, every single day. The demands to obey, sometimes strange things, to walk humbly with the God of heaven and do what he says, exacting as he has said it, listening to his commands and directives with the comfort all the time, knowing that we will win, for we have won. Even as the people here won, we too will win. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and all that it teaches us and indeed reminds us. Uh, We need to be reminded so often. We pray, Lord, that you who have secured the victory for us would continue to comfort us, encourage us and strengthen us through he who is the commander of the army of the Lord. As we see him battle, as we see his labors, we are strengthened for our own. Help us. Hasten the day even when the church militant will be the church at rest. But until then, Lord, cause us to be faithful to what you have told us, we pray for Christ's sake.